I'm so excited to share with you today's conversation with a returning guest, someone who has travelled a fairly divergent path since we last spoke. I'm Ali Hill and welcome to Stand Out Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly, even when boldly is the absolute last thing you feel like doing. A previous global CEO, COO and current non-executive director, Michelle Cox has owned, founded and headed up many companies in her 25 years in the corporate world. Something that I didn't know about her until recently was that she was an elite athlete in her youth. She won awards in sport as well as in business and on a personal level overcame cervical cancer. Michelle was an adult orphan who's also not only had to deal with her own mortality but has endured great loss from a very young age. But ever the optimist, she has now gone on to become the founder and author of the Wabi Sabi series which is a number of books that focus on topics that we don't often talk about. Well, that was like an invitation to today's conversation because I definitely wanted to talk about these topics with her. Michelle is also going to be uh, soon releasing her own podcast called the Wabi Sabi series. And here we are in the current COVID-19 experience that we are all going through. I would also encourage you to follow Michelle on Instagram at at michelle.j.cox or at the Wabi Sabi series as she is tracking May moments of joy across the month of May. This conversation is filled with moments of joy as I reconnect with Michelle and we tackle some of the tough conversations and some of the tough topics that she addresses in her books. So please find the beauty in life's imperfections with the gorgeous Michelle Cox. Michelle, welcome. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Sally. It's awesome to be here. It feels uh, like such a transition since I saw you last. So it's wonderful to be sitting with you again. Huge transition. And we're going to uh, talk about that. Obviously, we are... Um, we are doing our own social distancing or physical distancing. We had hoped to do this uh, together in a studio in Sydney, but with uh, the changes in the last couple of weeks across the globe, uh, you're sitting down in Sydney and I'm sitting in my wardrobe in Carumban. So my quick check-in is how are you travelling? Yeah, I'm doing all right. It's um, such a, yeah, it's quite hard to comprehend. You know, we're kind of at the early phase of this and uh, all the, uh, the dreaded COVID-19, uh, you know, fiasco, I guess. But I just can't help but wonder that, you know, for us in Australia, we've still got a little bit of pain to go. We haven't quite hit our, um, you know, the, the bottom sort of part of it yet, I don't think. Um, obviously, most of the business and uh, to events and stuff that I'm involved in and the businesses I'm involved in are in tourism. And so it's been a really torrid time and uh, really hard for so many companies and many of them are owner-operated businesses. And so it's been heartbreaking, to be honest. So that's been, you know, it's been going on for weeks long before it sort of started to hit a lot of other businesses. But um, for me, uh, personally, I've been trying to navigate you know, all of that and how I can help others and how I can be of service to others, but as well as have a bit of self-preservation and not, you know, not take that on too much. And because I, you know, I, I, I tend to really care for others. So I'm really conscious if I watch the news every day and all day and, you know, I'm having multiple meetings and things, then I will get a little bit overwhelmed with it all. So I've been um, putting a few different things in place to try and uh, ensure that I keep myself well. And I think that's really critical uh, for all of us is just to pay attention because the adrenaline of the first kind of wave that um, I think is still there a little bit, but it's gonna it's gonna die down pretty quickly. And um, that that importance of checking in with ourselves and checking in with those around us is going to be really, really critical. So look, I appreciate you. You, we were just laughing and saying our life now lives on zoom, (laughs) which is uh, where we're absolutely hanging out. Obviously we had the great, um, privilege of having you on Standout Life podcast previously. I had a look the other day, it was three years ago and you were on episode 19 and we're pretty close to episode 90. A lot's changed for the podcast, but also a massive amount has changed for you. You have been, well, I guess at the time when we spoke, you were a full-time executive 
of a global company and you are now living what you call your portfolio career. Mm. Can you tell me a little bit about that, that transition for you? Yeah, I'd love to. And I think, first of all, though, I, I just want to call out, I guess, as you say, the transition that I've had over that time, but also the part that you played with that, Ali, and your podcast and the, you know, what your forum does and the way that you, you know, your books and um, your speaking does in terms of actually showcasing others and giving people a, um, I guess, you know, whether it's a, a level of comfort or um, a forum in, in order to speak their truth and speak their, you know, find their own voice. And uh, yeah, it's, um, your podcast was very much a, um, an amazing sort of, you know, platform for me in that regard. I didn't know it at the time. But you did. Um, Careful what you, you say yes to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you remember, I, it's so nice to be here three years on and having now done multiple interviews and podcasts and speaking and all that sort of stuff. But I was so nervous. I remember <laughs> when I had to go in the studio and you had all these famous people you'd been you know, interviewing before me. And I was like, had massive, you know, that whole kind of imposter syndrome thinking, what on earth am I doing here? Why is she interviewing me? This is going to be the shittiest interview. <laughs> Poor Ali's going to have to, you know, ring me up and say, I'm so sorry, but something happened with the recording because, you know, we can't, it was too tragic to play. But anyway, little did I know that actually it was one of, what's, didn't it hit your top five or something, which again, I was shocked about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, which, and it's the, uh, um, I mean, uh, for me, and, and I know you're in the same boat, it's those true stories, it's those real stories that, that, uh, that allow us to have the conversations that sometimes we just don't have um, mm. that really are what people are craving for. And that's what you brought, even in amongst all your nerves. I do re distinctly remember we finished uh, and we I think we went for two hours or something. <laughs> and you said, was that okay? <laughs> like, it was amazing. So it's been really lovely to hear how it's connected with, with people. Um, and thank you for, for your lovely kind words. It's something that uh, obviously I'm, I'm so passionate about and I, I just know that it's, uh, it is powerful when we, we connect and we share and um, are okay to, to, I guess, speak some of those concerns or fears, the amount of people that go, oh, me too, I've got that as well, um, which, yeah, you had the courage to jump yeah, in. Yeah, I think that was it. Yeah, and it was the first time I'd really spoken about a number of my, like my personal stuff. Obviously, I've been sort of on the speaking circuit for years and obviously talking with a corporate hat on and speaking about cultural change, all the, you know, the typical things, I guess, as execs. And, um, but I'd never really talked about my personal stuff. So you gave, you know, you really drew that out in a really, um, you know, very caring way. And then a lot of people heard that and then I was asked to speak more about that sort of stuff and then it sort of snowballed from there. And then lo and behold, you know, um, what was it, May last year? So May, uh, what are we, so May 2019, I was in a, um, I was at a conference and I spoke again about some stuff that I'm passionate about. This topic happened to be uh, all around uh, your choice or not choice or, you know, navigating having children or not. And um, I've spoken about this a few times, but this was the first time I'd done a whole entire kind of quite a long talk about it and sort of contextualised my life and how I'd, grown up, you know, with an Irish Catholic grandfather that was one of 11 and always thought I'd have kids and all that sort of stuff and then how my life kind of chopped and changed and went in a direction that I didn't really imagine. And um, that talk then kind of led to people saying, you need to write books on this stuff. Have you ever written? Are you, you need to speak on this sort of stuff more. And it sort of planted seeds because people had been saying that to me for a while, but I was like, I like I have no interest to write a book. I've never you and I talked about your book years ago. I was like, wow, that's amazing because I just could never imagine writing a book. <laughs> and then from go to woe, like from five months, the period was from when uh, I had the epiphany. It wasn't one book; it was several books that I um, needed to write. It was a series of books, but they were short, sharp, um, small sort of commuter reads. I guess you could read in two hours. And they are about topics that we don't often talk about. Because the things that I'm passionate about are around us living an unconventional life and about the fact that my life is very different to yours and that is absolutely okay. And that, you know, the pressure that we'll feel to live a life like, you know, the Joneses or the Smiths or the whatever. And um, 
I just want that to stop. I want people to be much more compassionate with each other. And I think, you know, if one thing that's coming out of the uh, events today, I think we are or we, and will continue to be a lot more compassionate with each other, hopefully. But um, it went sort of from five months from conception to then the creation, the writing, the building the website, the publishing. And then I launched the books in just before Christmas in December. Um, so, and all my writers, friends said, what the like like who does that for someone that never wanted to write yeah for me yes it was a real change and what i hear is um timing like it's the right thing at the right time um can you talk a little bit about even that creative process what surprised you because i remember you and i've spoken and, and there was even a part of you just going it just came out of me um so talk to me a little bit about that yeah, and I mean, some people sort of, you know, the number of people that ask me about it and they're like, what do you mean you wrote them and did it all and published and whatever in five months? And I said, yeah, well, I, I didn't know any different because I'd never aspired to do what I didn't really know about the publishing world. So I had sort of immersed myself into that um, space. So I think I could write a whole book about writing a book because <laughs> what I've learned around that has been fascinating. And as you know, you know me reasonably well, anything that I don't understand or I don't know, like I'm such a you know, a sponge, I just go and find whoever I know that knows about it better than me and I interview them or I shout them a, a cocktail or a coffee or whatever and say, like, how can I just, you know, learn from you? What can I learn from that process? So that was part of it. It was really about if I'm going to do this, you know, what is the best way to do it? And especially for a non-writer. And I say I'm a non-writer, I'm still struggling with using the term author, even though, you know, published author. It's just like it feels a little bit awkward still. Um, and I think it's interesting because I was never confident with um, English or writing or grammar you know I just it wasn't a strong point for me I was very strong math science girl at school um, and then throw in the sort of physical side with you know uh, sport and athletics but um, just never really you know very strong communicator but and a storyteller but not in the writing sense I was just never really confident there so this was I had a lot of stuff to kind of work through in that as well so I just embraced anyone I knew and if you recall you were one of them because I was like you've published books how do you do it what's the way if some you know you were going to give someone advice in that regard what would it be um I've got some quite um famous uh, fiction writer mates and sort of queried them as well and said you know, if you were going to educate or teach or coach a, a person who classes himself as a non-writer, what tips would you give them? So I took all that on board and then just kind of gave myself some air to do it. And so that was probably the interesting part, getting into a, a sort of a strict regime with it to try and write every day, even if it was only, you know, 50 words or whatever. Um, and my husband and I had sort of planned to go overseas for four weeks. And in amongst all this, um, I'd left you know, corporate, traditional sort of corporate life, the executive, um, the business that I'd been working in for a long time, Bastion Collective, where you and I'd met. And so I'd been with them for nearly seven years and I'm still a shareholder of the business now, but I left the employee in terms of working with the company full time. So um, I had a bit more time on my hands. I had a bit of flexibility in terms of my days. So I've been you know, working from home now for a year. So I kind of feel like I've got into a groove of it. Yeah. A bit you, you can teach us a few things about that at the moment. Yeah, at the moment. <laughs> yeah, with stuff. Yeah, yeah, it took me a while. I've got to say it does. Um, you've got to be disciplined about particular things. Um, uh, but then, yeah, I had the space. We went to Europe for holidays and I started to sort of write. But the, so when people sort of challenged me and someone, you know, someone said, oh, okay, well, be interesting. I wonder, is it kind of like a draft, you know, given you only did it, took it in five months? I was like, well, that's interesting. And I think people might think that for someone else that's taken five years or 10 years to write a book, which of which I know many people, they might think that, you know, my book's like not as, you know, deep or whatever, or the, the content concepts in it but it's actually 15 to 18 years of content and stuff and things I've been thinking about I just never sat down and captured it all in one point and um, that was the key thing for me I think to get over that sort of hump as well but interestingly I don't know if you've heard um, Elizabeth Gilbert talk about have you read her book Big Magic? Yes yeah it's and one she, of my top favourites. Yeah, but I've, I've seen her speak and she talks on this topic as well and it's in that book where she talks about the um, uh, American author, what's her name, Ruth, um, think about it, 
American, the American poet Ruth Stone. And she's 90 years and uh, Liz interviews her and she talks about her creative process and how as a kid growing up in Virginia, she used to be out in the fields and she would hear a poem coming galloping across the field and she would run to her house and get her notepad and her pencil and capture it as the poem basically went through her and she was like narrating. And Elizabeth Gilbert, that's the sort of stuff she talks about. Goosebumps talking about that. Um, she talks about that in a book about how with a lot of creatives that the actual ideas um, enter and exit humans like, you know, almost like a human consciousness that wins. And I'd never heard it articulated like that before. And I was like, wow, it was kind of like, you know, I wrote like a devil woman. <laughs> it was just like, and I don't know where it came from, but, you know, the ideas and the stuff. So, yeah, it's interesting. It's really interesting yeah. space. So. I, I love that concept. And, and she describes, you know, ideas as being these things that come and visit you. And if you don't act on them, if you don't jump on them, they'll go and visit somewhere else. And, and that to me is just this beautiful fascination that, yeah, you can make a choice. And if your life is at a point where you can actually go, I can dedicate to this, then yeah, I, that, that funneling can happen. And there are other times you'll get ideas and it's not the right time and they'll float off on yeah. someone else. And that's okay as well. Yeah, absolutely. And she talked also, like she refers to about Tom Waits and his, you know, the musician and how the songs come to him in that regard as well. But so I think a lot of creatives find that, and I guess, you know, for those that think that's a bit, you know, out there, I guess we can call it like a state of flow or, you know, being in the zone. It's a similar thing. If you are in that, being able to capture that when you are an artist or a creative. So um, I think the, the lesson for that at the moment um, for me is, you know, when we are in isolation and things are changing in our world, um, is actually are there elements and ways that we can bring more creativity in our lives at the moment? Because, you know, this is a time that's probably never going to be the same again. You know, we are stuck in our homes or um, for some, you know, lovely enjoying being having that sort of, that time at home and being able to that nurturing sort of way. But are there things like books or, you know, particular things that you've always wanted to write or do or create or, you know, paint or whatever. And um, maybe this is a perfect time to do that. And for me, that's, um, it's a bit of a beckoning because it feels indulgent at a time when we're almost in survival mode, like literally fighting over the toilet paper and hand sanitizer but how dare we kind of talk about creativity and expression but I agree with you I think if we can see that from a different perspective there can be something pretty amazing or some ideas that come out of it the books yeah. that have poured out of you are extraordinary and I want to go through them but you've called the series Wabi Sabi can you talk to me about why why that term and what is it behind that that is the uh, the thread because it, it fits perfectly but what's the thread that that sits behind that creativity for you yeah thank you um it it, it really resonated with me and um you know a bit like the book's happening pretty quick the idea of the books um like came to me at 3am in the morning sort of woke up the idea was kind of forming, picked up my phone and got into the notes section and started to write, like I literally wrote six outlines, eight um, topic headings and outlines for each one of them, the synopsis. Um, you know, published three books, I'm writing another two at the moment, as you can see with my wall next to me, they're the next two books. <laughs> and um, that that whole entire concept had sort of come up with, and then I went, to, that was four o'clock in the morning, or three o'clock in the morning, went back to sleep, got up, went to yoga at seven. And then by the time I'd come back from yoga, I came up with the name of the series as well, which was the Wabi Sabi series. So it was like, I don't know where that shit came from, but you know, anyway. Yeah, just right time. Big magic. Um, so I've obviously been in tourism for a long time and I've traveled uh, many times to Japan. It's a country I love and uh, for lots of been there for holiday as well as business. And uh, many years ago, I heard about the concept called Wabi Sabi and uh, had a number of people. I was like, that's it's not wasabi. That just to clarify. They <laughs> said, why are you calling a book series like after that green horseradish? Because <laughs> it's spicy and I'll get ya. <laughs> <laughs> you. <idiot. laughs> no, darling. It's 
wabi-sabi, not wasabi. So um, wabi-sabi is a Japanese philosophy and it's all around embracing imperfection. And when I first heard them talk about it, it was originally around, predominantly around ceramics and the tea ceremony, where you have a, um, a you know, teacup that was deliberately uh, a floor was put into the glaze so that you would sit and have the tea ceremonies, which go for hours, and you would sit and contemplate that imperfection within the teacup and actually think about that and see the beauty within. And when I heard this concept, I was like, wow, that just kind of sounds like me. Like, my life's so stuffed. <laughs> like, there's so much shit that's happened to me and so much going on. I was like, but, you know, I embrace that. And I've got lots of scars and flaws and lots of imperfections, but, you know, I just, I don't let it define me and I kind of get on with life and I'm, you know, really optimistic soul. So I just always loved it. And so when I thought about the books and thought about what I was writing about and, you know, this, and one of the things that I wanted to give the world is actually if we could all embrace our imperfection far more, we'd all be, you know, it'd be a much better place and we'd be kinder to each other and be kinder to ourselves. So it just really resonated and sort of worked. And um, yeah, that's kind of where it came from. I love that, uh, that sense that there's beauty in it as well. It's not just accepting it, but to find what that beauty is, to find um, how that imperfection actually gives you something else in life that maybe yeah. you wouldn't have had otherwise. And that definitely weaves throughout these, these three books. I'd, I will go through each of them because even the uh, the headings themselves, they pack a punch. And when you say we, we talk about topics that most people don't want to talk about, they bloody well do. <laughs> so, um, and, and they are these kind of little uh, books that you can kind of pick up and re read and refer to. You'll see I've got my post-it notes on them. I um, love it. But one of them you've got is doctors aren't gods. Taking responsibility for your own health and well-being. Now, I know that this came from your own pretty traumatic experience. Are you happy to share some of that with us? Yeah. So, I mean, each one of the books have got a, a subtext. So, yeah, clearly I'm a marketer. So, um, you know, getting a, a nice little grab heading with a grab, <laughs> like clickbait, as we call it. But there is intent behind it. And it, they were never designed to shock in the sense of people being confronted by them. But I've been quite surprised at how many people have been confronted. And um, that was never my intent of that. It's actually, you know, really around, I want people to take more responsibility for things that they can and to stop giving our power to others. And so the Doctors Are Not Gods book is, the subtext is taking responsibility for your own health and wellbeing. And that's really important to me. Um, I've had a share with that. So the books are part memoir. They're a little bit self-help, but I don't actually tell you what to do. So these are through stories of my own, you know, those close to me, and then what the learnings were of that. And then also I bring in, you know, what some um, um, reviewers have given me of fact bombs. <laughs> I'm going to throw a fact bomb in there. <laughs> and they're like, whoa. <laughs> it was kind of jolting and teaching me about stuff along the way. So I kind of bring in what's going on in the environment, what are the things that we need to think about, and so um, just to get us thinking a little bit more about these particular topics. And I just want people to have conversations about them. So um, the, the, the interesting thing with the doctor's book is that uh, for centuries we've always felt that doctors are, are more elite, um, that they, uh, you know, they are almost otherworldly and they're not as human as the rest of us. And I think as part of that journey, and it's obviously come from, you know, many years of, of um you know, tribal ceremonies and all those sort of things and, you know, the medicine mans and all that sort of element as well where we've sort of progressed through that. But also uh, when we sit in front of a doctor and we actually hand our power over, what's happening these days is that the medical industry and also technology is changing so quickly that actually that mere human as a doctor sitting in front of you can't know everything and anything about every part of your human body all the time and so that's what I challenge us and the medical fraternity as well really is actually that we can't expect them to know everything but we do expect them and then a doctor also as a medical professional has this um, feeling or this sense that they sort of are supposed to know everything and that you know I'm telling you there's nothing wrong with you you're fine go home take some aspirin or whatever you know and so we're like oh okay that's what the doctor said I'm fine so I'm gonna be fine so I kind of really um, talk a lot through that and say how can we um, it's not you know I don't bag out the medical fraternity that that's not the intent of the books it's actually 
really around um, us taking that control back. And so the the real reasoning for it was my mother had a couple of um, uh, really bad um, incidences um, throughout her life. And my mother also died at 47, so she had breast cancer, um, was diagnosed at 45. And um, she uh, then was misdiagnosed uh, because of her circumstance, her age and her size, she's a size six. And so she didn't, um, wasn't diagnosed for about nine or 10 months with breast cancer. By that stage, it was too late, unfortunately. Um, then uh, myself, I was misdiagnosed equally for nine months and I had um, cervical cancer. So I sort of touch, touch base and that was really interesting actually. I've not revisited that so it's now 17 years since that happened um, and I'm very healthy and uh, fully clear now, which is lovely to say. But I, um, I knew something was wrong with me and I kept going back to the GP and saying, hey, this doesn't seem right. And she's like, no, you're fine. It's okay. And I'm like, no, it doesn't seem right. And my point was that, I am a very strong, outspoken um, businesswoman. And so I can advocate for others. I can sit around a board table. I can advocate for businesses. And I'm very comfortable to speak out about things. But put me in front of a doctor and I feel like, you know, two centimetres tall. And I just really question why that is. Why do we all feel like that? So that, you know, I interviewed numerous people, I interviewed numerous medical people, um, doctors, nurses, you know, those that have been in the field for a long time to get their view as well. And how is it that we can, you know, how can we combat this and take more control back? And given what's going on at the moment, um, where people are like, oh, but the medical, you know, they're so important. They are so important. They're so vital to our lives. I'm not saying that you shouldn't go to doctors. I'm just saying go armed, go forewarned, be educated. You know, you've got so many tools now available to you to learn about. Don't self-diagnose yourself. Don't do it with the Dr. Google. <laughs> but, you know, go to your doctor um, with more information and uh, empower yourself more. Yeah, and there's... Uh as you say, doctors are humans as well. They work long hours and uh, often are sleep deprived. And, you know, you know, we're, we're about to come into a time where our health system is going to be stretched to the absolute limit. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I think even you know, great doctors recognise that there are things that they'll look for or things that they'll miss um, in certain circumstances. So it's what I so appreciate you about sharing your story is the, just that permission to, to trust that little thing inside of you that says, oh, I'm not sure, or I don't feel like I'm armed with the information, or it doesn't make sense why either why this test is happening or why this test is not happening. <laughs> Let me find out more. Um, and how critical and, and important that is uh yeah and you know i talk about it go go and get a second referral go and get a third referral if you need to i would never have been in the situation that i found myself in um of having to have emergency surgery like literally flown finding out at 7 p.m and having to fly home because i was interstate for work and a midnight flight and going into um hospital 7 a.m so i had 12 hours from the time i was told to the time i was being operated on um, so my life literally changed overnight and I had emergency surgery to take a tumor the size of a football out of me and that would never have happened if I you know really challenged the doctor more and uh, interestingly I did challenge him <laughs> anyway um, uh, it's a whole other story and um, but I kept you know I was kind of get, kept getting shut down and sort of almost made to feel like I was a hypochondriac and I just should have gone to another doctor mm. and got a surgery in that way but, you know, 17 years ago, that wasn't kind of normal. Like, and I'm a trusting person and I'm a loyal person. And so my story is around, you know, this could happen to any of us. Um, and I just don't want it to happen to anyone. I don't want anyone to go through what I went through. And oh, if it's, it's little bits of stories yeah. can help. That's great. What, what was that flight like for you? I can't imagine what would have been racing through your head at the time. Um, yeah, I, I remember... 
I remember being at my friend's house, Suzanne, and I talked about that, the poor thing. I said to her, I'm writing this in the book. Are you okay if I use your name? She's like, oh, I don't want, I don't want to remember that day. <laughs> She's, she was traumatised by the whole thing. And she had kept such a straight face when I was at her house because I um, found out I was in the hotel um, foyer in Darwin. And I just, I didn't know what else to do, but I knew I had to get away from all the staff and stuff that I was there with. And um, the only person, like, she's a really good mate of mine. I said, can you come pick me up? And she's like, yeah, are you okay? I said, no, nah, but you need to come pick me up. She's like, okay. Didn't ask any more questions. Got in a cab, got me. She had to sort her kids out, took me back to her house. And then it just took me a while to tell her the news I'd got because I hadn't really processed it then. I think I was still in shock. And then we had sort of five hours, six hours or something before I had to get a flight. She when I was on the flight. She put me on and her and her husband, and she said she was a mess once she, she put me on the flight. And I remember because I couldn't even have a drink or anything because I was like, oh, I'll just drown my sorrows. But, you know, obviously you can't even drink because you're about to get operated on so nil by mouth. And um, and I just, I was in a daze the whole flight and my life, you know, that whole point of your life going, passing before you. And I thought, this is not it. This can't be the end. You know, I'm 31 years old and, like, you know, my mother had died. My mother had died um, a few years before of cancer as well, but different breast cancer and cervical cancer aren't, aren't related, um, uh, you know, genetically and stuff. So, yeah, it was, um, I just, I was just trying to keep my, you know, self together, to be honest. And I knew once I saw Dennis, like I would get really upset. So that was kind of the other side that, you know, I had to kind of really work through and try and keep brave for him. And um, yeah, that was um, the start of the, my new life and it changed my life again forever and how are you now different with uh health practitioners and uh the health profession professionals that you would engage with because i'm sure after an experience like that even 17 years on as you say you're clear but that would come with checks and uh check-ins how are you at the moment how is how does that has that experience changed for you yeah, I'm um, I'm really vigilant now, and sometimes I think almost over overly so. But I I just need that peace of mind and make sure that um, everything's okay. So I, you know, if when after you've had cancer, you get regular checkups. You know, you go for sort of every month to then two months, three months, four months, six months, and then you go on to every year. Um, so I've been you know, on annual checks now for a long time, and um, yeah, all clear for ages. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a real straight shooter now with doctors and I tell them how it is. So it took me a long time to find an, another GP afterwards and I found uh, an amazing woman uh, used to be in the city um, of Sydney and then now I've got a, an incredible sort of alternative doctor. He's a trained GP but also um, uh, is holistic, which is what I like, for, to look at, you know, sort of straddling both, you know, east and west in sort of ways. And... Um, I'm just really forward with them. I'm like, nah, that's not going to work for me. Nah, not happy with that. Nah, don't feel comfortable. What else? Like, so I just kind of treat it. And I think for me, I had to sort of almost like treat it like a business transaction. Because if I was sitting there in a business kind of, you know, in a, a business sense and I felt like someone wasn't being truthful or wasn't giving me the right information or it didn't make sense to me, I wouldn't be afraid to question it. I wouldn't be afraid to ask. But with doctors, I'm always, I sit there and go, I just feel like I'm stupid or something. I, you know, they were 10 years of university training and I don't. So I kind of go, Whoa. you know, of course they must know more than me. But I'm like, I've learned over the years, you are the only person that knows your body as well as you do. No one knows your body like you. And every one of us are different. Even though we might have the same kind of muscle structures or the same bones or whatever, we are all so different. And um, through especially the research I had to do with this book, it, the the complexity that can go on and that the body's amazing. Mm. There's so many things that can go wrong with it though. <laughs> so, you know, how can we expect this, um, you know, person in front of us to, to know all about that? So I take it really seriously um, to the extent of, you know, I do wellness retreats every year and that to me is a almost a part of my, um, uh, what do you call it? Like a, you know, like a just upkeep and things i just ensure it's not a luxury it's it's a necessity and um i you know take my in terms of food and exercise and um reducing stress and all those factors i'm i'm very vigilant with that and have been for for a very long time now it's just part of my way of life yeah um 
crap experience to go through, but strength out the other side, which is, uh, which is really powerful. So I'd love to move on to the next topic. Um, and these books don't come in particular order. You can pick up the one that kind of speaks to you. You can pick up all of them. And as you say, there are more books to come, which, um, which yeah. is exciting. But the, when you talked about kind of subheadings, this one totally grabbed me because it's definitely a topic that we don't talk about. But the title is It's Okay Not to Have Kids. The subtitle being, you, we are more than our parental status. My God, even as a mum, I went hallelujah to that. Um, like, it's, what, what experiences have you had where parental status and self-worth have been wound or blended together? Oh, jeepers. Um... I, you know, I, again, I interviewed a lot of people for this book because I had my own, pers- you know, my own perspective being a, um, a career woman that um, always wanted to have children. And I have a husband, I have two um, beautiful stepsons, but would still get asked, you know, but don't you want your own kids? Or why didn't you have your own? Or, you know, is it ever going to happen? You know, all this sort of stuff. And um, I was always really challenged with that. But then the, I think the the reasoning why I started to speak out about this and the first time I talked about this topic was on the um, TED stage, actually, in the Opera House. I did a little TEDx talk uh, probably six or seven years ago now and it was uh, short, sharp, you know, that's how I left it, but it was really challenging that notion and my whole um, premise on this is that we know it's not okay to talk about our, you know, our weight, you know, talking to someone to say, you know, let's talk about your weight, let's talk about your religion, let's talk about your sexuality, you know, that we know all that stuff is not cool to talk about, but everyone still thinks it's okay to not only ask, you know, if, when, why, you know, why not, whether you have kids, but actually have an opinion about it and then tell you their opinion about, you know, something so fundamental in your life. And I used to think, whoa, like people don't know my story. And often it is those that were, um, you know, people that didn't know me well and they didn't know that I'd had cancer and, you know, everything I'd gone through, basically just lucky to be alive. And yet I was being judged in this way of being less of a woman or less of a caring person or I was selfish or all those kind of things. And I was like, you know, I swear that basically stuff you like that whole that's none of your business. And so that used to really anger, anger me. But then as I sort of, you know, we were getting older and I had so many mates that were struggling to get pregnant and um, had, you know, either not met the right partner or they were navigating, you know, multiple courses of IVF or um, were, you know, gay and, um, and my lesbian friends that were still navigating at those days, like whether they could have children or not. And, you know, all the laws are sort of changing in that space and, you know, those trying to adopt and I thought wow I had that choice made for me and it was really shit and my circumstances really shit but I don't I don't have any power over that so I just that's my style is to move on and yet a lot of my friends were still dealing with that and they had the same you know kind of um judgment on a daily basis but and they were still living that pain you know whereas if someone really graded on me I could actually fire back with and go well you know what <laughs> this is kind of why but I don't know but they need they deserved it no <laughs> but anyway um so that's why I thought this needs to be talked about more and interestingly as I started to interview people and talk about especially younger um generations but even you know people that are my age or older and they they made a conscious choice and they said I actually never wanted to have kids or uh, a lot of younger people you know are saying well actually we've got nearly eight billion people on the planet I think ethically, environmentally, sustainably, it's not the right thing to do. You know, and so I was like, whoa, that's a whole other conversation. So it was fascinating to sort of bring that in. And then equally, like your response, uh, a lot of my mates with kids had told me over the years about their struggles and how, you know, they'd been amazing career women. Most of, you know, my friends that um, had had children later had these phenomenal careers. And then they became a mum and then felt that that didn't really fit in with what they thought it was going to do. And then they kind of lost their career and then their sort of their definition of what success looked like to them was really challenged. And they're like, yeah, I'm a mum, but I'm still a CEO and I can still run a business and run a family, like all this judgment, you know? So I was like, how do we, why do we, we need to stop, stop with the labelling. 
stop with the, you know, you're a mom, so you can't be a CEO or you're, you know, you're not a mom, so you must be heartless. So it was all really around those sort of conversations. And again, talking, you know, really honestly and vulnerably about my own stories and my journey through that to bring out those elements and then bring in some of the other things that we should be considering. Yeah, I think it, um, it comes back to, and even the terminology where you say it's okay, it's okay, whatever, whatever the choice is, whatever the outcome is, whatever the reason, as you say, your experience was not by choice, but it was by acceptance. Plenty of others that are by choice. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's okay to step into these conversations. But um, I hadn't really thought about it around how much it is just up for grabs. And people are almost allowed to have an opinion on it and you'll hear it whether you like it or not. Yeah. So um, I love the way that you're inviting people to go, actually, it's not your story to know and let's build a, like, let's trust each other first before you <laughs> before I dive into that with you. Yeah, and a girlfriend challenged me on that and she, it was interesting because um, she'd gone through several bouts of IVF and had some real challenges and I sort of, you know, was with her all through that and she said to me once, like, but I don't understand what the problem is. Like, it's just like asking about the weather if you have kids. And I said, yeah, fair enough. I said, but like, there's two things about that. One, um, it's okay to ask, do you have children? And you say, no, I don't. That's fine. Like, but it's the questions that come after that that are not okay. And it was the, oh, so why don't you? Have you ever thought about it? You know, what all the stuff I said before. Um, and I said, the other thing is actually we're more than that. We're more than a parental status. It doesn't define you whether you're a good or a bad or, you know, a more significant human because you've procreated. Like, let's talk about other things. Let's ask someone about what they're passionate about, what the sort of interesting things are they working on. And that's sort of how I end the book and the chapter about saying, actually, I challenge you when you meet someone next to talk about different things. Like, don't just go to the whole, we're, you know, and this is kind of the next book I'm writing is about our attachment to titles in in the workforce which obviously is quite topical at the moment when um lots of things are changing and it's you know we always ask what do you do who do you work for do you have kids you know they're yep. boring questions like we can let's be better <laughs> we yep. can be better yeah. and it's almost there's a safety because i can put that in a box and then i can understand you but we're all so unique and different i love that yeah. question of yeah, yeah what are you passionate about what are you doing at the moment mm. yeah and what are, Funny because the feedback, uh, one of the two of the chapters that I um, get a lot of feedback, one is about the chapter called uh, Shit People Say. So, um, where I give verbatim quotes about what has been said to me over the years, but I'll leave, let people read that. Um, and the other one is where I really challenge people. So, I interviewed a number of people that I knew that had children. And I said, I've always been asked why I don't have kids. I said, well, I'm going to ask you why you did have children. Mm. And so, that was quite confronting and really. Um, quite um, liberating in a way, but also eye-opening for a number of the people I interviewed because they'd never thought about it. They'd never talked about it with anyone and they'd never admitted it. You know, some of the stuff had been bubbling up all the way they'd felt, but they'd never admitted it to themselves or out loud mm. about saying, well, actually, I didn't really want kids. I just kind of, I just went along or it was the next thing or I didn't really think about it or I didn't, you know, whatever. So that, that's an interesting topic that I get a lot of feedback on. Yeah, there's an assumption that it was planned and desired and it's not often that people don't, you know, whatever, own, but it's not always the case and that's okay as well. Yeah. That's totally and I think for people listening um, to your point about you having children, I'm getting, because a lot of people say, oh, but I've already got kids so I won't read that book. I'm like, no, you're the people that need to read it because you're the ones that ask us that don't have kids. You don't understand <laughs> I also there are days where like I'm happy to outsource them to someone else and I'm like oh look great decision <laughs> so things you know they can change hour by hour <laughs> um, so, so the third of these books and again they're not in any order but the reason why I wanted to leave this one to last um, was because I think there is a bit of a, a zeitgeist at the moment that people are going through on a whole range of different levels, but it's about grief. Um, and the title of it is Death Doesn't Have to Be Morbid, Life, Death and Learning to Grieve. And so the, the primary uh, focus is about death, uh, your experience, which you've mentioned before about losing your mum at such a young age and, and the frustration and the hardship of doing that past a 
misdiagnosis, um, but also your own kind of grief. I think grief is an emotion that we don't often have the language for, we don't know how to work through. Um, and I actually think it's one of the pervading things that we're experiencing at the moment with COVID-19 uh, is the grief of what we thought 2020 was gonna be. The grief of the plans and the strategies and the holidays and the time with people and work uh, and process that, that we're kind of going through. What have you learnt about grief? Uh, and how have you navigated grief? In just you know a short question easy question to answer in <laughs> 30 seconds oh, or less <laughs> wowzers well you've read the book so you know yeah. um yeah this is a really important one and again um all the books have been different and i found that you know writing them there was an element i never thought i was writing them for myself but throughout the process they were incredibly cathartic to do. And, um, you know, writing this, it was quite profound for me because, first of all, I, as I sat down to write the death book, as I call it, um, I've, I've realised that I was the exact same age that my mum was when she died, so which was 47. And it never really occurred to me before. I mean, I'd, I'd been thinking about that, like, even when I had a 45th, I had a massive big party with all my girlfriends and stuff. And, and I wrote them all these really personal beautiful letters about you know why what I loved about them how I loved when we first met I remember the first you know all the different things and they're like are you sick again what's going on they're all panicking I was like no no I'm not going anywhere I just you know I think it's important that we tell each other how you feel and that's I've always been like that and I want to share that and, and you know share my love for you right now in the moment because you never know and because I've lived that I live, I've lived that often um, I ensure that I live my life like that every day. But so recognising that was it for my mum. And I sat there and thought, wow, she had four kids and, you know, such a will and a, you know, feisty uh, Irish, you know, upbringing, um, feisty woman that she was. I just, I never thought she was going to die, even right to the end. And then that was the first kind of realisation, being the same age and sitting there and going, this can't be it. There's so much I want to do. There's so many things that... I still have on my bucket list, you know, like, and I don't hold back. Like I live life to the fullest. I've still got tons to do. Um, and then the second part, as I started to write down, cause I was like, wow, grief has been such a huge part of my life and me dealing with grief and how I've navigated that and how, you know, you go through the processes of which I talk about the um, Kubler-Ross kind of cycles and things. And I um, then kind of started to write out all the funerals I'd been to. And I was like, whoa. So, you know, kind of these were people that I knew, remembered, you know, the names because it's a lot since I was like the first funeral, I was five, my grandfather's. And, um, you know, can remember every single one of those. And then I've been to others that might have been, you know, through work or, you know, my husband or whatever that I didn't know the people as well. And so I knew that there were ones I couldn't remember all of them. But um, the ones I added up, there was over 28. And two of those funerals I arranged, which was my mother's and my father's. And um, I just thought, wow, that 28 funerals is way too many for a woman that's 47. And that was pretty profound as well. So again, I'm no expert in this area, but I've dealt with it a lot. I've dealt with a lot of grief and a lot of death. And so what I wanted to do with this book is actually to share some of those experiences and how I felt through some of those moments in time and how I have beautiful friends and I have amazing people that surround me and so love and caring, but none of them really knew what to do. You know, when mum died, they just, they didn't know what to do and how to deal with me. And so this is almost like a book, you know, sort of help people in that regard. And beautifully, a number of those friends then sort of, you know, read it and then came to me later or rang me or wrote me letters and stuff and said, oh my God, like I remember that vividly. And we just, honestly, you speak, we never knew what you were going through and we never understood that, but to read it now is just so amazing. But then also for you to now give us the language of how we could have helped you and then how we can help others. Yeah, so, such a beautiful gift to be able to share and, and navigate that. Um, because when you're in the middle of it, you don't, know the language yourself you can't possibly ask where you go just ask for help you don't know <laughs> what what that looks like or or what that is um 
you described it being quite a cathartic kind of process for you. What has, you know, having written that book uh, kind of left you with in terms of, um, I mean, one of the things you talk about is, is how being faced with our own mortality, uh, our own potential for death, which is at the moment, uh, it's probably our only guarantee in life, uh, is to actually that it gives you more clarity. How has that impacted even what you're navigating at the moment in terms of your, your portfolio career and the work that you do and the contributions you make and your friends? Where does that Yeah, one, one of the things I do talk about is um, that death isn't the only thing we grieve. And I think that, you know, it's really pertinent to what's going on at the moment. And, you know, the, like when I had um, cancer and they basically took all my internal, you know, female organs out, then, you know, I grieved a time through the loss of that, the loss of not becoming a mother, not, you know, being able to give my husband a, a child, like all that, all those kind of elements that we'd always talked about and that we wanted to do that together and, you know, all those other complexities. So right now where, you know, people will be grieving, you know, their jobs, their companies, their lifestyle, the, the world that we knew before, you know, and, but, I don't dwell on stuff, Ali. And I think that for me, uh, and interestingly for a number of people that I, um, you know, have, have met and have interviewed through this that have had near-death experiences, um, you, uh, you get a very clear view on the world and, you, you know, you're able to kind of really narrow in around what's important. And most of those that I've met, myself included, you don't tend to sweat the small stuff. You know, they're very interesting, quite insightful people that actually cut through the crap very easily. And so right now, like that's that's been, you know, some people are like, oh, you've been quite flippant and you're quite nonchalant and you're whatever. I said, no, no, I'm just very clear about what I need to focus on right now. And part of that is I can't watch the news. I cannot bring that into my, my husband gives me the top lane. This is it. My five seconds, I go, that's it. I don't want to hear about anything else, you know, today unless it's absolutely necessary. I know it because it doesn't add any value to my life. And so, um, you know, I need to be clear about what this is going to change, what it's already changed. You know, I've already done a budget to say, okay, this is where we're at now. This is our life's going to change. And what does that look like? It's not going to be the same again. So I'm going to grieve for that for a little while, but I'm not going to dwell in it and I'm going to move on. And so, you know, those are the things I sort of talk about giving the tools and the things that I want people to, to try and apply to your life. And, um, you know, grief has a, it has very, very many different forms is probably the only way I could sort of describe that. And every single one of those deaths that I've gone through in life, um, I'm a, what's known as an adult orphan. So I don't have, not only do I not have my parents, I don't have my grandparents and um, I only have one aunt totally that's left out of all my aunts and uncles and stuff as well. So um, quite a lot of death within our family. And every single one of those, um, you know, people's passing and stuff has affected me differently. And the grieving process has been different every time. And so that's something to learn and know about as well, that it's not going to be the same. And it's not the same if it's a parent versus if it's a child versus if it's a you know, a distant relative or a work colleague, every single circumstance is different. And so I think that's really important. Um, but for me around the, you know, the sort of stuff that I talk about in there, um, in the book is around that, you know, dying fast or dying slow, fast and furious or slow and steady. That was something that always fascinated me. And I think, you know, I've always had this kind of, what people call like a morbid sense around talking about death and stuff. But to me, it just, it really brings things into clarity, as I said, and it helps me to live a very full life every single day right here, right now. Yeah, I think I mean, often the word is perspective, but I don't think that even sums it up, but it's just that understanding of this isn't permanent. Uh, and so anything can change at any given moment. And you've had your experiences around that. Um, but there's also a, a liberation that comes with that, which is, I think, uh, the the other side of talking about death, talking about grief. It's not something to shy away from, uh, but where can it not paralyse you but actually uh, really liberate you? And that's what I love about your contribution to, 
to those conversations. Um, and you're so right, every grief is not the same. There are different things and different ways that are connected to it uh, in different circumstances. My grandma passed away year before last. She was 98 years old. She was the, and still completely with it at the end, she was the um, person who looked after the oldies in the nursing home who were, you know, 75. And, um, and it was just amazing. And her funeral was just this beautiful kind of celebration. Um, but I had a grief because my mum passed away quite young as well when she was 54, bowel cancer. Um, and a lot of that grief was actually that mum wasn't there for her mum's funeral. Mm. So it's interesting how there can be different layers or different elements that kind of come in to what we're facing. And I think anyone listening now is just to honour whatever that grief is for you, uh, whatever layer, it's totally okay. But to your point is where can I control and what can I move on? It's not putting a lid on it, but it's actually where can I um, control and, and step into the next thing. I know part of your next thing is these next couple of books. Are you happy to share with us? I love the one around titles and labels in workplaces. Are you happy to give us a bit of a sneak insight into what you're pulling together? Yeah, well, I actually started, so I said I wrote the outline for this last year, so a while ago, um, when I had that sort of epiphany. So I started writing it probably about six weeks ago, like actually started getting stuck into it. Um, and yeah, it's an interesting one. It's a, it's a topic that I felt was really pertinent and um, it's around losing your uh, job and not losing your sense of self. Um, but obviously being sacked or um, having your role made redundant. And um, I felt like having had that happen to me twice, one was I was a CEO and the role was made redundant. So it kind of rocked my world and how I had to navigate that, um, how I then recognised, you know, your attachment, like the ego's attachment to titles, the, um, you know, how, as I said before about introductions, and everyone asks who you are, what do you do, what's, what's the company you work for and, and the way you attach yourself to that, which is quite fascinating. Um, and so, again, they come from my kind of experiences, what happened to me, how I felt about how I dealt with it, you know, how I navigated all that sort of process. So, um, but obviously given uh, the current climate and I think there's a lot of good stuff in there that could really help people. I'm conscious of the sensitivity around how I'm going to have to write that um, because thousands of people are already out of work and, um, uh, you know, it's, it's an interest, it's a changing world. And so it was very different now to when I first started writing that book. So that's where that one's sort of at, um, I'm partway through. And then the other one is, um, it sort of came to me as I was sort of getting stuck on some of the other stuff. And it really is about the premise, the wabi-sabi. It's around that embracing imperfection. I thought the whole series is about that, but actually I don't really talk about that specifically. And so um, I started to get into that sort of component, which, which sort of started to flow is um, going so yeah going really well but but as we sort of alluded to before um, this is only just one part of what I do so the um, you know speaking on these topics and the books have kind of been bringing out those kind of conversations like you know we're having now but uh, I'm uh, launching my own podcast which um, I will get you on congratulations I'm excited it was always the intent when I wrote the books um, and because they are talking about topics we don't often talk about, that is the premise of the podcast. So short, sharp, fast, but I ask you one question and it is literally, Ali, if there's one thing that you would wish that we talked more about, what would it be? Mm. And that's what our whole podcast is about. So um, I'll get you to think about that. Cause yeah, you know, now you want. <laughs> I'm going to make it good because <laughs> there's no pressure. I almost feel like if you put me on the spot, I can at least get away with having a crack no, at it. <laughs> that's awesome I love it um, that's that part and then in amongst that I sort of have my day jobs of being on boards and coaching businesses and uh, you know still that sort of executive side which is lovely and keeping the you know the brain sort of um, very much in check with uh, the business world which I love so yeah it's it's my world has definitely changed from the three years ago that we first sat down together um, but it's really important for me to love what I do. And right now, you know, bringing more creativity into my life and having space to do things that I love is really important to me. And I think more so than ever with what's going on, I want to try and help others, you know, whether it's inspiring them or at least assisting them to how to navigate and set that up and, and get their life sort of in that, set it up in that way to be able to be a bit more flexible with things. And, you know, it's not all about the big house, the big car, the, you know, keep getting money to get more stuff, actually simplifying and, and consolidating sometimes actually is easier and better and 
makes you happier. Well, I'm glad that uh, you followed the ideas and, and went down this rabbit warren that, uh, that life is taking you at the moment. Obviously, in episode 19, I wrapped up our podcast by asking you a question. I'm going to do that again because, as you say, life's changed. And I think each time I ask people this question, um, I have had a few guests that have come back and there can be a slightly different answer. You, there might be the same answer. It doesn't. No one's comparing. It doesn't really matter. But in terms of where you're sitting right now, the name of this podcast podcast is called Standout Life. When you hear that, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? Oh, I think um, the first thing that comes to mind is authenticity and truthfulness, you know, being true to yourself and living a life that is absolutely right for you. Um, the authenticity piece, I think, is probably consistent because I reckon I might have said that before. That's that's kind of been my mantra for a long time. I did want to listen to that. I was thinking about having a chance. But it is, you know, really, it, it's about probably where the reason of writing these books is to give people a language or a forum if they can't have a conversation with someone else to say, hey, my life is not your life. I want to live a life that's true to me, mum, dad, husband, you know, whatever, um, partner, um, you know, stop judging me through your lens. And so, you know, I've, the feedback I'm getting is actually I've given people a, a almost like a forum to say, hey, have you read this book? Oh, I've read this book and this is what this author said. So it's really around, um, you know, enabling for people to live a life that's unconventional, like to live, you know, we all deserve to live our happiest truest most you know best lives and uh, if there's some beautiful things that can come out of this horrendous situation that the whole world is in at the moment I'm hoping that it does help us to simplify things to get really clear about what we want in our own lives and giving us the you know the mechanisms and the and the ability to start to step into that and to be you know be truer to ourselves and um, yeah hopefully be more uh, you know, authentic and, and, uh, you know, happier. I'm signing up for that. Sounds good to me. <laughs> Michelle, it's been yeah, such a delight. Already. Yeah. <laughs> As I sit in my wardrobe, <laughs> hiding from my kids. <laughs> uh, it's such a delight to chat with you, to connect with you again. Congratulations on, uh, on these books and the ones to come and the podcast series. We'll put all the links in because I know that these are conversations and topics that people want to dive into. Thanks so much, Ali. It's so beautiful to connect with you again like this. And obviously we've been in touch a lot over the years since our first meeting. And I just, uh, yeah, I adore what you do and the forum as I said, that you provide for others to, to really speak their truth and to, you know, talk about their stories and share them with others. So thank you. Thank you.